Welcome back. It's lovely to see you again. James Paniki is my name. I'm a senior editor here at MLEX, and this is our weekly podcast covering the top issues in regulatory affairs with the assistance of our team of reporters around the world. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Today, we have a special program for those with an interest in bribery and corruption, as well as money laundering and the regulation thereof. In just under 10 minutes from now, I'll be crossing to New York, where our correspondent Samuel Rubenfeld will walk us through the significance of a new rule from the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. Just what is the OCC, I hear you ask? Well, Sam will explain that and will reveal just why the banking regulator is encouraging US companies to innovate in how they report suspicious transactions. It's a truly interesting development. First up, though, to the UK, where contractors to a company that bottled drinks for Coca-Cola, no less, have fallen foul of the country's Bribery Act. And it's not just the bribery itself that's newsworthy, although that is certainly a good yarn. The story is being read as a cautionary tale for companies failing to enforce and promote their anti-bribery and corruption safeguards and training. Martin Coyle is a senior MLEX reporter in London and he has written a piece of analysis on just what happened and what it all means and he joins us now. Uh, So Martin, tell me something about this case. Uh, What's it all about? Yeah, hi James. So this is a case that concluded last month at uh, Southwark Crown Court in London. Uh, It was a bribery prosecution involving uh, three UK businesses that received corrupt contracts from a a bottling company contracted to Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola Enterprises UK, to give it its full name, uh, awarded electrical testing contracts totaling £13 million between 2004 and 2013. Uh, to a trio of companies uh, called, uh, one of them was called Bolting Group, an electrical and mechanical contractor. Uh, That's now known as WABGS. The second company was an automation and control company called Tritech Systems. Uh, And the third was an electrical contractor uh, known as Electron uh, Systems. Now, three men linked to the companies were uh, also prosecuted over the, uh, the, the bribery plot, uh, and the companies and the men all pleaded guilty. I think it's important to note at, at this stage that Coca-Cola itself was not accused of any wrongdoing in this case. Mm. OK, so walk me through what happened to the men involved and the companies involved. Yes. So uh, as we've explained, so the, the companies were all convicted on bribery offences uh, and fined a total of £640,000. Uh, now, there were three men involved. Uh, the first man, uh, Noel Corey, uh, he, he was a 56 year or he's a 56 year old uh, former manager in that Coca-Cola uh, unit. Uh, the second man, Gary Haynes, uh, who worked for Electron Systems uh, and the third man, Peter Kinsella. Uh, they were all uh, handed suspended jail sentences, which mean they didn't uh, actually go to jail. Now, prosecutors said that uh, Corey, he, he was at the heart of this corruption uh, and he ensured that the three companies received large volumes of work in return for bribes uh, that he got. So, so working with the two others, uh, Corey awarded uh, these companies uh, contracts at in inflated prices or for bogus work, uh, said prosecutors. He then pocketed the cash from the scheme via a uh, slush fund. So he, he basically passed them secret tender information um, when contracts were coming up um, about rival contractors bids uh, to give them a bit of a heads up on, on, on what was going to happen. Now, Corey 
he made more than a million pounds uh, from from these um, payments, and he also received uh, tickets to sports and entertainment events and uh, sponsorship for his local football club where, where that he was involved in. Okay, so tell me something about how the case got uncovered. Yes, so um, Coca Cola only became aware that uh, confidential information was being leaked in uh, 2013 after Bolting Group mistakenly sent it a document containing a comparison with a rival bidder. Uh, this led to an, in, uh, an internal investigation and the whole scheme unravelled. Uh, Coca-Cola then instigated civil claims against the man to uh, claw back money from them. So Martin, this was a Bribery Act case, right? So tell me something about that legal context in the UK. That's right, James. So uh, yes, the company was prosecuted under Section 7 of the Bribery Act, now, under this, um, companies can be um, held to account if they fail to put in place adequate procedures to uh, prevent bribery. So there haven't been too many of these cases reaching the court since the Bribery Act came into force in 2011. Um, and we've only had one contested case so far, which led to a conviction uh, of a company. Okay, so are there lessons to be learned here for companies operating at this level? Well, um, the companies all pleaded guilty, so we haven't been able to see what types of defences companies could run in court, or we haven't seen a real test of how this, um, you know, Section 7 offence would work if, if a company contested it. But what the case does demonstrate is that those companies not taking these issues seriously could end up in the dock. Now, um, prosecutors said that uh, Bolting did have a uh, business ethics policy in place, but sections of it, including the parts related to gifts and entertainment, were simply rehashed versions of a document published years ago. Uh, and qu- quoting from a prosecutor's note, uh, it, they said, it is important to note that while the companies had policies on its intranet, it only paid lip service to them and failed to put in place means by which bribery uh, would be uncovered. Uh, and the prosecutors added it also failed to properly train staff and didn't register the lavish hospitality uh, and gifts it was handing to um, to Corrie. Now, they did put in procedures in place a bit later, but by then it was all too late. Uh, so there were similar findings at the other two companies. And I, the, the lesson here uh, for companies is, you know, if you don't put these policies in place and ensure they are effective, uh, effective then you could end up in hot water and find yourself down at Southwark Crown Court. All right, uh, Martin, it has been great uh, talking to you as always. Thank you for walking us through this issue, and I'll speak to you again very soon. Great. Thanks, James. Martin Coyle is a senior correspondent working from MLEX's London offices, and his analysis of this case is online and ready for you to read. Just head for our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com and click on the News Hub tab for all of the latest reporting and analysis. You're listening to MLEX's weekly podcast. I'm James Paniki. And in just a moment, we'll tell you about the evolving regulatory landscape in the US when it comes to the obligation of banks and other financial players to report suspicious transactions. And of course, you can subscribe to MLEX Podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. For years, financial regulators have urged banks to experiment with new products to help combat money laundering and other illicit financial activity in the US. 
and banks have increasingly done so, according to the text of a new rule from the Office of the Control of the Currency, a rule that takes effect on May the 1st. So why this enthusiasm for automation? The answer to this is contained in a recent piece of analysis from our New York-based reporter Samuel Rubenfeld, who joins me on the line right now. So, Sam, uh, let's start with the basics here. What is a suspicious activity report, an SAR? Okay, so a suspicious activity report is a document that's filed with the U.S. federal government. Uh, The EU and U.K. and other national authorities have similar reporting regimes where any bank or financial institution, and that includes uh, anything like a money services business, a casino, um, some uh, financial entity of that nature, believes that the money involved in a transaction may be illicit or in some way suspicious. It's not a criminal finding. It's not a criminal allegation. It's basically just a red flag for the government to potentially to collect and potentially uh, investigate further. And Sam, how often are these filed? Oh, many, many of them are filed. Last year, there were millions of them in the U.S. alone. There were, according to figures from uh, the U.S. government, more than 3 million were filed last year alone. Um, As of April of this year, there had been nearly 900,000 of them. Okay, so the OCC rule is meant to largely harmonise its regulatory regime with FinCEN, but maybe remind our listeners first, what is FinCEN and how does it operate? Sure. Uh, FinCEN is an office, another office of the U.S. Treasury Department. It's officially the U.S. government's so-called FIU, or Financial Intelligence Unit, which means in layman's terms that uh, it's the representative to various world groups where financial intelligence units of uh, various governments around the world congregate. Um, In addition, FinCEN enforces U.S. anti-money laundering regulations, which are mainly promulgated under a law called the Bank Secrecy Act and its subsequent amendments. It's the uh, official collector of all suspicious activity reports, So the data I just provided to you on how many are filed came from FinCEN. The body does its own investigations and is uh, a bit of an integral part of the U.S. anti-money laundering regulatory apparatus. Now, why would a bank seek an exemption from filing an SAR other than obviously avoiding a bit of red tape and a bit of bureaucracy? So there are many, many reasons why they might. The rule itself involved here for the OCC or the Office of the Control of the Currency doesn't actually get into that. It just gives the regulator the authority to provide them. Um, FinCEN had a general authority to provide such exemptions and the OCC did not. So the purpose of harmonizing was so that way the agencies had broadly similar rules. Uh, In terms of why a bank would uh, seek such an exemption, uh, it may be that the bank may have may have filed an error or may uh, it may believe that the transactions are involved may not be suspicious or maybe below a a certain threshold in some way. These uh, suspicious activity reports are not necessarily filed in real time. There's a bit of a, a 
a review process before they get they sometimes when they get before they get filed. So a bank could uh, could have any number of reasons, and uh, for the purposes of this regulation by the OCC, the bank that seeks an exemption has to provide uh, its reasoning in writing, and the OCC can, on a case by case basis, make its determination under the rule as written. Okay, so now you reported that banks are spending money on innovation. What kind of innovation and what are they trying to achieve with that? Uh, Banks have been spending billions on innovation. They've been encouraged to do it for years by the U.S. government. Uh, The purpose is in large part to automate certain aspects of account onboarding, uh, simple know-your-customer checks, making sure that a an address field is fill out, filled out or a name field is filled out, things like that. And it allows for bank compliance officers to do uh, more intelligence-heavy work, things that would require analytical skills as opposed to automated things. More recently, however, banks are turning to things like uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence technology in order to uh, speed up the process when they're investigating hundreds of millions of transactions in a given time period. But why would a regulator, which has happened this time, be pushing a bank to spend more on this type of innovation? Surely all that matters is that they receive their suspicious activity report. It doesn't really matter to the regulator how that's achieved, right? Sure, but the the, the OCC in its rule said they wanted to to do this further and that it's uh it, it doing so spending more money encouraging de- uh further in- innovation is as the OCC put it consistent with the regulator's support for the reallocation of bank compliance resources to their most effective uses essentially they're asking banks to be more efficient with their compliance budgets Sam, thank you so much for uh, staying on top of all of this detail. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Samuel Rubenfeld covers anti-bribery and corruption as well as money laundering from New York. And his analysis of this issue is on the sunny side of the MLEX paywall and it's ready for you to read and enjoy right now. MLEXmarketinsight.com is where you need to be. MLEXmarketinsight.com. You'll notice a tab called News Hub. And that's where you'll find a range of reporting and analysis from the MLEX team. Now, it saddens me to tell you that this is where we need to leave the podcast for today. But I can assure you that we'll be back in your feed next Friday at more or less the same time. And I certainly hope you can join me then. From me, James Paniki, and everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you for your company. I'll see you again soon. Bye for now.